0: Good morning, happy Easter, Union Chapel. Thanks for joining us online today for this uh, wonderful celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I know you're excited about that, I'm excited about it. Uh, This is a great day uh, for the life of the Christian. So happy Resurrection Day to you. As you know, we've been uh, talking about all of these characters around the life of Jesus Christ from the Gospel of Matthew through this season of Lent. And today we come to this final event of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and those characters who were present around the resurrection. Perhaps we can identify with them and learn much from them today. And so I hope it'll be meaningful to you. We uh, have chosen as our text today, again, from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. I want to read the first 20 verses from Matthew 28. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Our custom is to stand. Let me invite you to stand to hear God's word. yet filled with joy. Can you imagine? And ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests, everything that had happened And when the chief priest had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night, stole him away while you were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Now to the Great Commission. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, And surely I'm with you, with you always to the very end of the age. And may God inspire, instruct us, empower us through his holy word today. Thank you so much. You may be seated. God bless you. I know some of you are tuned in today because it's Easter and, you know, that's a special day. And people around you said, You can't skip church on Easter. And so you felt the peer pressure and the familial pressure. And so you're tuned in. So welcome to you, too. We're glad that you're here. We affectionately call you folks CEOs, you know, because you're very important people, uh, Christmas and Easter only folks. But we're glad you're here, glad you tuned in. And we're excited to share this amazing story, this message of hope that comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, um, I heard the story of a of a, a son who was a bit reluctant to go to church. His mother came in, woke him up and said, wake up, son. It's Sunday. It's time for church. You know, get up and get ready. And he kind of rolled over. And a few minutes later, his mother came back in, shook him a little bit more firmly. Son, I said, it's time to get up, you know, time to go to church. It's Easter for crying out loud. Let's go. And he mumbled and moaned and A third time she had to go in, and this time she was much more forceful, got him a a little bit awake and said, now get up. We've got to get ready for church. He said to his mother, I don't want to go to church. She said, well, why don't don't you give me two good reasons why, why you shouldn't go to church? He said, fine, I'll give you two good reasons why I shouldn't go. If you'll give me two good reasons why I should. She said, okay, I agree. So he said, all right, first of all, I don't like those people down there at that church. And second of all, they don't like me. Now, why don't you give me two good reasons why I should? His mother said, well, okay. First of all, you're 42 years old. And second of all, you're the pastor. I don't know if that's funny or not. No one's laughing. At least no one I can hear. But there's a lot of pressure on Easter. And let me just make this confession. There's a lot of pressure on the preacher. Because there are so many extra people tuning in uh, around Easter, showing up on Easter, that it's like the Super Bowl for Christians, and there are all kinds of extra people around, and the pressure is that you've got to, you know, really bring it. You've got to really present something that's compelling enough so that people are engaged, so that they might want to come back or tune in next week, and, and so you feel the pressure of that. My wife, my wife tries to help me. She she said, honey. Relax, don't, you don't have to feel that kind of pressure. She said, just last night, you know, in preparation for this, she said, don't, don't try to be witty or funny or charming uh, or intellectual. She said, you know, just be yourself. <laughs> I, I mean, Now that was funny. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure you got it or not. But this is it, isn't it? Isn't this the greatest day for Christians? Union Chapel, this is the big deal. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's everything. Because if it happened, game on. Game on because all of the promises made by God, promises fulfilled in Jesus Christ, this gives meaning and significance and substance to our faith. And if it didn't happen this resurrection, then it's game over. The whole whole thing is a hoax. None of that which we believe is true. And so we can learn some things from our text today. For example, the women who came early in the morning uh, to the tomb that day, they knew that there were going to be obstacles to their mission. They had brought some uh, expensive spices to prepare the body of Jesus for final burial. It's almost like in our context, they would have brought a bunch of flowers for the gravesite. And so they're just showing up, but they know there's a heavy stone in front of the opening of the tomb. There have been Roman guards placed to keep people away from the tomb and they're gonna be up all night cranky as they get there. What is certain with these women who came that morning is that they were not expecting a resurrection. They they weren't sure what to expect, but one thing they absolutely did not expect was an empty tomb with, with this stone rolled away And as it turns out, they find this angel sitting on top of the stone. You know, it's kind of almost, you almost imagine it lounging, you know, chilling out on top of this stone. And you've got to hand it to them, though. They love Jesus enough that they wanted to be near him. Even in death, they're faithful, but they, they didn't expect the resurrection. Let me just say this very clearly. Nobody expected no body. Wasn't expecting that. Archeologists aren't even sure exactly where the tomb is to this day. There's a traditional site. It's more of a narrow, small enclosure, closure just outside of the old city. If you've traveled to the Holy Land, you've seen this tour. There's a second site that's a, a tad further down called the Garden Tomb. It's a little more spacious and it is more in keeping with what we read in the gospels about this tomb. But what I can tell you is that both of these sites have something in common. There's no body in either one, nobody. Nobody was ever found in the day and no body has ever been found. The empty tomb then provides for us a significant piece of evidence. And the reason it's so significant is because producing a body would have been the easiest way to stop this movement from the very beginning. Despite all of that um, notion that a huge stone covers it, guards are in front of it, we wonder what happened instead. The claim was that someone stole the body, but it doesn't make any sense, does it? I mean, the behavior and the activities of all the people in this story, especially those who were believers, the disciples and the women Uh, I mean, the way that they left this point moving forward is not consistent with what you would expect from people who'd been lying about what happened to Jesus. You see, the Christian movement spread through the world faster than anyone would have expected. It, It spread with people who had no resources, they had no connections, they had no social status, no public stature, but they were compelled forward by this simple claim, this simple belief, this simple conviction that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. Yeah. By the way, uh, when they said that he was risen, it was clear they didn't mean some spiritualized resurrection or some metaphorical illusion, or, you know, he's risen in spirit or he's risen in our hearts, or he's alive through all of his great teachings, you know, like, like a Gandhi or something like that. Jesus was an actual person with an actual body that went into an actual tomb, a body that was entombed under Roman guard when all of them went to bed on Saturday night and the same body is gone when they all get up the next morning. What drove them from this point forward, as we read in our text today, was fear and great joy. The women were afraid and yet filled with joy. This is an interesting combination, isn't it? The apostles, these women, the earliest Christians always pointed forward and all of them were filled with both of these emotions. You see it in their teachings, you see it in their writings and you see why this story can't be a lie or it can't simply be a made up legend because of this fear and because of this joy. To say simply that it was a lie isn't consistent with the facts, the evidence and the behavior of those who believed it. It's not consistent with some legend, you know, it's like, well, let's just make up a story. Let's just tell everyone that he's raised from the dead. And if we say it long enough and and, and, believe, and believe it ourselves, and maybe the world will believe it someday. And so it's just through oral tradition established as some legendary fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. No, no. This is not this is not the indication that we have from the evidence present. Fear and great joy. Now, why would you be afraid? You're afraid because a guy that you know was dead is now alive. What do you mean he's resurrected? That's awesome. That's staggering. And so now suddenly these comments that he would make about who he was. I'm the Son of God. I am the creator of the world. I am the Messiah. These these kinds of claims now suddenly begin to take substance, they take shape, they they come into focus, because if it's true that this Jesus we've been following around the last few years is actually God, Messiah, Emmanuel. Whoa, that's awesome. That's a fearful thought. It's an amazing thing. And joy, why would there be joy? Well, if the resurrection is true, it means that God literally has come to the earth for us, not to condemn us, but as a friend to save us. This is great, great news. This is a joyful thing. And so you see these prominent emotions emanating from the followers of Jesus from this moment of that morning in in, around that garden tomb to this very day, the emotions of fear and great joy. It only makes sense. It only makes sense that the manifestation of these emotions have perpetuated for 2,000 years, it only makes sense under one condition. They believed he was raised from the dead. And subsequent generations of us believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. The apostle Paul, of course, was not a follower of Jesus at this stage. He came to faith somewhere about 34 AD. uh, And he wrote the book of Corinthians, both the first and second letters there. All the scholars throughout time, I mean, some people debate some of the authorships of some of the books of the Bible. No one debates. This is genu- This is genuinely and generally embraced. as true that the apostle Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 15, 6, he points out that most of the 500 people who had seen Jesus after the resurrection were actually still alive. Most scholars think that 1 Corinthians 15, 6 is actually the lyrics of a song that they sang in the first century. Uh, the lyrics being something like this. Christ died for our sins, was buried in a tomb. He rose from the dead and he was seen by 500. One of these eyewitness accounts of the resurrection of Jesus. The point is that the resurrection is something people believed. Believed by followers of Jesus from the very beginning. It wasn't something that was added on tacked on later through some oral tradition or some legendary process. But the earliest believers in Jesus believed that he had been raised from the dead. So Paul, along with all the other apostles, these women and others went out testifying with great fear and joy, giving away their wealth, giving away their lives, many of them going to their own martyrdom, convinced, declaring with great conviction that Jesus Christ had been raised from the dead. Let me ask you something, if you're lying about something, you've lied in your life, I've lied in my life. When you lie about something, don't you usually do it to gain something from it or to avoid some kind of punishment? And there's always motive behind lying, right? Wealth or power or honor, but their their testimonies led almost all of them to just the opposite place. They they never equivocated, they never flinched around the conviction that they had that Jesus Christ had been raised from the dead. And they did it with fear and great joy. And without personal gain, in fact, just the opposite. They lost their lives. They gave up their fortune. They gave up everything that was precious to them in order to serve Jesus Christ. want to show you a statement. This is from the late Thomas Arnold. He was professor of modern history at Oxford University. He's the author of the widely acclaimed three-volume history of Rome. And he said, and I quote, the evidence for Jesus' life, death, and resurrection has been shown to be satisfactory according to the standards of any historian. It holds up according to the common rules for distinguishing good evidence from bad. Tens of thousands of persons have gone through it piece by piece as carefully as any judge reviewing the most important case. I have myself done this many times over, not to persuade others, but to satisfy myself. Throughout my life, I have made a career of studying the histories of times and events, examining and weighing the evidence for what was written about each of them. And I know of no other one fact in history, which is proved by better and fuller evidence than this one. Jesus Christ died and rose again from the dead honestly, friends, the question, the question isn't whether Jesus rose from the dead. The question really is, what are you going to do with the evidence that he actually did? Every week in this series, as you know, I've shown you how Matthew places people in the story that give us possible ways that we might respond. So let's start, uh, first of all, on your outline, let's start with the women. The women who came to the tomb that day, who respond with fear and great joy. Again, fear, because this is an awesome revelation. Jesus Christ is who he said he was. And he He is Messiah. This is awesome news. This is amazing. And again, joy, because now God has made provision for us. He didn't come to condemn us, but he came to save us. He didn't come to judge us. He came to rescue us. This is this is. Good news, glad tidings of great joy, the angels announced at his birth. And so we find that same joy now in his resurrection. So if Jesus is raised from the dead, now watch it. Guilt doesn't have the last word in our lives. Guilt doesn't have the last word. There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Can you feel that? The empty tomb means also that injustice doesn't have the last word. There's lots of things unfair and unjust in our world today But the Bible promises that one day, everything crooked is gonna be made straight. That justice is gonna roll down like the waters. And everyone who suffered this kind of, uh, of unfairness in life is going to have all of those things resolved. That means injustice doesn't have the last word. It also means that addiction doesn't have the last word. That God has released a power on earth that can renew All that sin has destroyed. Hear that. Believe that. You maybe have messed up your family. Maybe you've messed up your marriage. Maybe you've messed up your life through addiction. But the resurrection means that if you ask Him, He can make all things new in your life. And Amen goes right there in the sermon. Because it's true. He has the power to do it. It means that pain doesn't have the last word. If Jesus is raised from the dead, this world. Many of you know has been described as a veil of tears. You watch everything you love and cherish eventually fall apart. Even our bodies fall apart. Maybe you've had a loved one who's suffered with dementia or Alzheimer's, watching the loss of their minds, their dignity. It's hard, it's difficult. Maybe you've lost a loved one in death and you've suffered the grief of that, devastation. And there are people who cynically say that that this is just the way it's always gonna be. If God is real, he'd stop it. He'd do something about it. Well, I've got good news for you. Jesus Christ has conquered all the pain in the world through the resurrection. And there's a day coming when there will be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more grief, no more pain. There's another amen right there in the sermon. The empty tune also, also means that despair doesn't have the last word. Now listen to me. As long as Jesus is alive, there is hope for you. There's hope for you. No matter how dark the night may seem, you, you right now may be living in circumstances that are just difficult and devastating and really hard to deal with. All I want you to know is that there are people who went to bed on a Saturday night years ago in despair. They tossed, they turned, they worried in their beds and all of that changed the next morning. I love love it that he raised from the dead in the dawn of the day, the dawn of resurrection. The Bible says that sorrow may last for a night, but joy, joy comes in the morning. (laughs) Praise God, amen. And finally, the empty tomb means death doesn't have the last word. All those who die in Christ are raised with him to eternal existence, life forever with him. And all those who love him is the promise. Praise God. Death has been done to death. Glory to God. Here's Dr. Billy Graham. Let me put this uh, quote on the screen for you. He said, if Jesus resurrected, none of these things that cause you grief, guilt and injustice and addictions and pain and death and the loss of loved ones have the final word. I could do others. The empty tomb is the final word. Wow. Wow. So you can respond as well with fear and joy, or you can be like the second group that we can identify here. It's on your outline. And that, that is the chief priests who close their eyes to the evidence. I mean, that's what they did. Rather than seeking out the truth, they pay the guards to lie because they don't wanna believe it's true. And so they, they wanna look the other way and ignore the evidence. I, I think there are many people in our world today who secretly know or, or at least suspect that Jesus is who he said he is. But they come up with reasons not to believe. And here's why I think they do it. I think they do it because they don't like the implications of it being true. They might, they might convince themselves that there are real reasons to doubt, but at the end of the day, they just don't want to believe. See, if Jesus rose from the dead, it means that he's Lord. And if Jesus is Lord, you have, you have to respond to that Lordship. That means uh, your pet sins and the way you deal with your money or the way you live your life and make your own choices and set your own agenda. Uh, you can't do that anymore. As it turns out, if he rose from the dead, Jesus will lay claim to all of that, lay claim to all of our lives as rightfully he should. So if Jesus rose from the dead, it means that I have nothing really to boast about. I have, I have nothing to to make as an excuse, I too am needy of the life and hope and forgiveness that he alone can give to me. So we have nothing to say. Remember last week we mentioned that in order to believe in Jesus takes humility. Grace always flows downhill, remember? And of course we have to humble ourselves. We can make excuses for why we don't believe. We can pretend like it's not true. We We can deny that it actually happened just like the chief priest did with all this evidence in front of them, the guards told them an eyewitness story. I mean, there was an earthquake. There was an angel like lightning. The stone rolled away. It's probable that those Roman guards saw Jesus walk on out of there. So the chief priests knew, but they chose not to believe it. They chose to deny it. Are you like them? Are you like the chief priests? In your heart, you're convinced that jesus is probably true or at least suspect that he might be but you never really press in because you don't like the implications as i just described the chief priests if if you're a critical thinker if you were actually weighing that evidence you you would you would say how pathetic how pathetic are those guys i mean covering over the resurrection don't they realize that jesus did rise from the dead. They've got these eyewitnesses here that they've made a mistake. They need to come to terms with that. And don't you realize that your own excuses for not coming to Jesus will look equally as foolish and pathetic in the long view of eternity? I mean, why would you? Why would you turn away from the evidence? Why would you want to be like the chief priests? Well, that leads me to this third group that we can identify with, perhaps. It's number three on your outline. And, and that's the, the soldiers who responded with fear. Yeah, with fear, but without the joy. Yeah, these soldiers, of all people, should have been convinced of the truth. I mean, they saw, they were eyewitnesses to this moment. The scholars suggest that maybe one or two of them actually came to Christ later. Uh, otherwise, how would we know this part of the story? Someone had to testify to it but most uh, just took the bribe money. The the chief priests actually gave them a large sum of money. We don't know how much, but it was not a little bit. And that's why they turned their backs on what had the potential to be the most important moment in all of human history. Why did they do this? I can tell you why. It's because the distractions of life, listen to me, have a way of keeping us from considering the most important questions. It's just so easy to get distracted and and tempted and led astray from the most important questions of life. Let me ask you the question this way. Uh, If you believe something to be true and it's wrong, would you want to know it? If you believe something to be true and it's wrong, would you want to know it? The soldiers, of course, represent those who give only passing attention to the weightiest matters. This is the most important question you will ever consider. Did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? Did he? Yeah. And of course, to reject that idea, you reject all the joy that can come in the midst of the trials of your life, the direction and clarity in your times of doubt. If Jesus raised from the dead, he holds the key to meaning and fulfillment enjoy and an ultimate eternal hope why would you want to resist that reject that we've all we've all either heard someone say this or we've we've said it ourselves in the context of someone's death a tragic death a most difficult death you've heard people, someone say i don't know how people who don't have hope can get through a circumstance like this i don't know I don't know how people who don't have their hope firmly fixed in Christ can possibly survive this kind of grief, this kind of tragedy. We hear that all the time, don't we? And it's absolutely true. It's absolutely true that Jesus alone gives us the hope we need because he has once and for all defeated death and hell and the grave. Praise God. Well, here's a fourth group. It's on your outline, number four. And that was the disciples who worshiped in spite of their doubts. Remember our text today, Jesus appears to them in Galilee, but some doubted. There's that phrase again, but some doubted. Now that's a little disappointing, but let me just give you my perspective on that. I actually find this really encouraging. Let me tell you why. Everybody has doubts. Everybody has doubts. I have doubts, you have doubts, all God's children have doubts. And here are these disciples who are laying eyes on the resurrected Lord Jesus, and they still have doubts. This is quite amazing, isn't it? But as I say, it's almost encouraging. We talked about recently that on the day of the ascension, that Jesus is actually going up off the mount, ascending to heaven. I mean, he's floating, he's levitating. And the disciples are seeing this with their own eyes, and again that phrase. But some doubted. Well, come on, guys, he's floating. And it's the same kind of same kind of thing, and we, and we can understand it in, in in today's terms. You know, someone might say, well, you know, I, I saw a David Blaine special on TV once. He was levitating, or you know, I was in Vegas. I saw Chris Angel, mind freak show, and he did some levitating. So you know, I can understand why you might might not be so impressed with Jesus doing it. But the question is, how could they doubt? And the answer is that what Jesus was doing or not doing, even in those moments, was still very confusing to them. Imagine trying to comprehend everything that God is doing in these moments, in these hours. It's it's really overwhelming. If you you just don't have the good concept of it ahead of time and you're experiencing these things firsthand, even though you're seeing them with your eyes, you're gonna be confused by them and there's gonna be doubts as a result. So doubt is a common Christian experience. The original disciples have doubt, and we too have doubts. It's normal. It's natural. It happens to all of us. But here's the question. Can you let the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus make you doubt your doubts? This is how I do it. When I have doubts, I just go, okay, is Jesus alive from the dead? Okay, that gives me permission to doubt my doubts. If I believe that, if I can embrace embrace that, if I can comprehend that, then I can doubt my doubts. Maybe there's an explanation to the question. And probably there is, maybe not here and now, but there'll be an answer to the question. So can I doubt my doubts? Here's one of my favorite definitions of faith. I'll put this on the screen for you, one of my favorites. It's that faith is when the unexplainable meets the undeniable. The unexplainable meets the undeniable. The question I often ask people is if Jesus came up to you right now and told you that he wasn't going to answer your question in the here and now, maybe later, but not now, and he reminds you that he is who he said he is, he's alive and well, would you be willing to suspend your doubt or at least hold it more loosely? this is the question I ask myself. Okay, I have doubts about that. Am I willing to... Am I willing because I believe Jesus Christ is is raised from the dead? He's alive and well. And is that enough in the context of my doubts to at least question my doubts or to hold them more loosely rather than to grip my doubts and let my doubts inform my life and shape my worldview? Can Can I hold them at least more loosely if I believe it? That's what faith is. It's the unexplainable meeting the undeniable. If there are some things I can't deny, then I have to be okay with some things I can't explain. That's undeniable. So even though I can't explain these other things right now, I can still embrace my faith. So I invite you to come back, come back, come back to church, come back, come back, because I know some of you have stopped believing and some of you have stopped participating and some of you have stopped coming and and engaging in the life of the church and it's because of your doubts. Could I encourage you? Could I invite you to come back and seek the answers just like the disciples did who had many, many questions? Because we all have questions. Let's, let's enjoin those questions together. Let's walk together, but let's not discard our faith and, and, and let go of what is actually undeniable at the foundation of our faith, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And let's walk together and journey together seeking explanations as we go. That leads me then to the last and final point here. And we actually find ourselves in this story. Number five, it's us who received the Great Commission. This is the last thing we find in Matthew's gospel and from our text. The Great Commission, of course, it's the ultimate point of why Jesus came to the earth. And the good news is now that we understand that Jesus lives and Jesus loves and Jesus saves. And that, Good message, that glorious message should be preached everywhere to all people in all places, in all nations. If this is true, that Jesus rose from the dead, then here's the mandate, we have to tell. Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples, preach and make disciples and baptize people, teach them, disciple them. And here's here's the mandate. If it's true, the message is true, the gospel is true, then we're commissioned to tell it. We're to commissioned to go and tell it. Let me ask you a question. If you had the cure for cancer, you had it, would you feel obligated to share it? Today, the, t- the hot topic is COVID-19. If you had the cure to this viral infection, you had it. Would you feel any compulsion to share it with the world? If you could just like that eliminate all the suffering from a horrible disease that causes causes death and suffering to so many people. If you had the cure, how would you feel about that? What sense of responsibility would you have around that? Do you feel like you would do whatever it takes to to share it this world-saving treatment? Would you do it? How about this, would you resist temptation? Yeah, I, th- I think I could. Would you, would you forfeit money, any fortune at all? I, I, think, I, could, I think I could be sacrificial about that. Would you, would you even give up your own life? I mean, that you'd have to think about that, wouldn't you? You'd have to consider that. You might, some of you may just go, I think I would. If I could immediately eliminate all the suffering, people in the world, and all it costs me is my life. (laughs) I would do that. And if you feel that way, let me just say, it does seem right, doesn't it? To feel that way. Here's my question to you. Isn't the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord of the universe, a thousand times more important than even those things I've described? When the eternal destiny of all of humanity is weighed in the balance? Isn't sharing this message of hope and life and forgiveness very important, the most important message any of us ever carry to another person? Here's an amazing thought. We were the ends of the earth. Think about this. We were the ends of the earth. Those of us here in America, in Muncie, Indiana, in in this part of the world, North America, the Western cultures. Listen, we were the ends of the earth when the great commission was first given. Think about that. And so the apostles, the the prophets, the missionaries, the evangelists, all of these men and women endured all kinds of suffering, all kinds of deprivation, all kinds of persecution. Why? In order for us to know, in order for us to hear, in order for us to be given the opportunity to know this amazing love that God has expressed to us. And so we we need to pause and ask the question, if not us, who? If not now, when? Isn't it our turn? Isn't it our turn to take the message? Yeah. I think of the impoverished barrios of Ecuador, where we have a team right there now. People coming to faith, dozens of people every week in Ecuador. Amazing. I think of the lands of Kazakhstan and Central Asia, where for 20 years we have had people, representatives from our local church there continuing to reach people for Christ, one of the most remarkable places in the world. And then I think of all the churches that we have planted and are planting around America and the people here right in our own town. The people here have to hear. The people here have to hear this wonderful news. Let me say one more final word. And this is to people who are joining us as our guests today. You may not be a Christian today. And I always fear that when I talk this way, you may react to it. Some of you may be right now. You say, this is what I hate about you Christians. You're always trying to convert us. You're always trying to persuade us. You're always trying to get us to believe what you believe. And it's annoying. I hate that about Christians. And you know what I want to say to you? You're right about that. You're right. We're always trying to convert you. We're always trying to persuade you. Here's the perspective I hope that you'll understand today. Can you at least understand why we do it? Can you at least understand why we're motivated to do it? You see, the risen Lord Jesus Christ has given us a mandate. He's given us a commission to go and tell you of this blessed hope. Some of you know the name Penn Jillette. He's part of the famous magician duo of Penn and Teller. You see him on TV. Maybe you've seen their show live at some point. Penn Jillette, he's the larger of these two uh, team members. And he is noto- notable as an atheist in the world. And he said about Christians uh, and about his friends, other atheists, he said these words, and I quote, he said, a lot of my atheist friends get mad you know, at Christians for being so insistent that they be persuaded to believe. And he said, I can respect that. He went on to say though, what I don't understand is people who believe the Christian gospel and don't try to persuade me. And then he concludes, how much do you have to hate somebody? Can you feel that? Can you hear that? If you really believe that, why wouldn't you warn me? Why wouldn't you tell me? Why wouldn't you try to persuade me? I mean, how much do you hate me that you wouldn't try to help me if you really believe the Christian gospel? That's a strong word. That's a, that's a strong admonition from an atheist, isn't it? Hey, you Christians, you better get more intentional about this, more fearful about this, more joyful about this, more passionate about this, telling others. And I think he has a great perspective. Well, as we conclude this uh, Easter message, I don't wanna force you or pressure you, but you do deserve to know the truth. And the truth is that Jesus Christ has raised from the dead. He suffered and died on your behalf. He drank from the cup of God's wrath for you. He submitted his own life so that you might be forgiven and restored in your relationship with God, given hope and given peace for eternity. That's the truth. And we can believe it true because Jesus Christ has raised from the dead. And so you may be ready today. Maybe you are ready to believe. Maybe you've suspected it all along. Yeah, I knew this was true. But now you're going to give it the kind of attention that it deserves. And Maybe you're a person along the journey. You're taking another step you You want to believe, but you have many questions, you have many doubts. That's okay too. But could you join us in the process? Let's walk together, seek answers to these questions together and seek the truth, because people who seek the truth and knock on the door of the kingdom of God and, and ask these questions. the bible the Bible promises that God will open the door, He'll answer the questions. He'll reveal his truth. So I wanna pause and just pray for us today and ask God to meet us wherever we are and to celebrate this wonderful news of Christ's resurrection. Would you bow your heads with me and pray? Lord Jesus, we thank you today for this amazing story, this amazing message. We thank you, thank you, thank you for the life that you lived, the sacrificial death that you suffered And most of all today, we celebrate that you are raised from the dead once and for all, having conquered death and hell and the grave and giving us this blessed hope of eternal life. Now, Lord Jesus, I pray for people who are in the process. They have many doubts. They have many questions. They're on the journey. They want to know the truth. So I pray that you would reveal yourself to them today and that you would help them and keep them and help them to take each step as a revelation of your goodness and your grace, the revelation of your truth. And then for others of us, Lord, we're ready. We're ready to believe. We're ready to believe today, right now. If that's true for you, then let me just lead you in a prayer and God will hear it. Maybe you can say it out loud. If you believe believe it in your heart, God will hear it just the same. And so pray right after me, right? Just say the words right after me. Dear gracious God, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for rising from the dead and giving me hope. Forgive me of my sins. Come into my life. I want to know you. I want to know your truth. I want to have your hope. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all you've done for me. I give you my life now you have mine. In your holy name, we pray. And all the people said, amen.